The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Welcome to the day the earth stood still. Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, March 19th, 2020. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. We don't see a lot of skywriting these days, an airplane leaving a trail of smoke in the sky to draw letters and spell out words. It's usually a simple message when we see it, usually for advertising or a marriage proposal. There's some dispute over the history of skywriting, but you'd be pretty close to say it started around 1920, with Brits and Americans to this day still arguing over who was first, give or take five years. In the skies over Sydney, Australia, where the government has declared a human biosecurity emergency, over the weekend people saw a simple message written in smoke. In mixed case, the still unidentified pilot had spelled out the words, wash hands. That was Australia. In the skies over Austria, meanwhile, another pilot's flight path spelled out the words, stay home. A survey last week found that 85% of us are washing our hands more than we did before this new coronavirus, and 61% of us were practicing social distancing. And that was a week ago, before things got even worse. And there's been an avalanche of virus-related news ever since. Italy has now seen over 2,500 deaths. Italy lost another 475 people yesterday, the most any place even China has lost in a single day. The U.S. is following in Italy's footsteps instead of Asia's. And because the U.S. is bigger than Italy, our death tolls will be much higher. While in China, they have just celebrated their first day with no new local cases. As this report is recorded, there are now well over 223,000 cases worldwide and well over 9,000 people have died. Mexico and Russia have just announced their first deaths from COVID-19. There are more than 9,000 cases now in the U.S., and at least 155 people have died here. Nearly 6,000 people have it in Washington State. Thousands are infected in New York. As testing increased, the number of cases in the U.S. shot above 9,000. Missouri, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, and Michigan have now recorded their first COVID-19 deaths. More than 15 have died in California, where 8 million people in nine counties have been told to shelter in place. A quarter of that state's population is now hunkered down. Now at least two members of Congress have it, forcing other lawmakers into self-quarantine. Both Utah's Ben McAdams and Florida's Mario Diaz-Balart have tested positive. The Florida congressman is the brother of NBC News anchor Jose Diaz-Balart. A Georgia state senator has tested positive, and now the entire Georgia state legislature is under self-quarantine. Our institutions of power and money are beginning to shut down. The New York Stock Exchange trading floor will be closed next week after several traders tested positive. The Dow closed below 20,000 yesterday for the first time in over three years. Over 12,000 airline flights have been canceled worldwide. Ford, Chrysler, and GM have shut down their plants for now. Ford says it's retrofitting its factories to manufacture ventilators. It's wartime. The IRS is backing off collecting overdue money and the census has suspended its field operations. Without recounting all the things that have been shut down in this country to slow the spread of the COVID-19 coronavirus, suffice it to say that life in this country has changed and that it will remain changed for a while. Institutions and businesses are closing like a trail of falling dominoes. 
The truth is, despite all the guessing, we don't know how long this disruption will last. After weeks as a public health crisis, the new coronavirus became an official national emergency, freeing up massive amounts of money and resources to try to contain the outbreak. Millions of Americans, however, have been forced to show up for work in order to keep getting a paycheck, and those are mostly people in jobs that don't pay much to begin with. Some go without pay because their employers have shut down while others work from home. Tens of thousands have seen their hours cut, and tens of thousands have now been laid off. In a country mostly without paid sick leave and devastating medical costs, millions worry more about paying their bills than they do about the virus itself. For others, in some parts of the country, life stubbornly hasn't changed at all. Disneyland is shut down, but in parts of the Midwest and the South, little has changed as many remain skeptical of the pandemic. We will get to the economic and medical aspects of our changed lives, but because it's crucial to our ability to handle what's coming, we need to examine how we got here and why things will get as bad as they will. The experts tell us that the severity of this crisis is directly linked to the speed and effectiveness of our response. They will also tell you we have neither been fast nor effective. This national emergency, the shutdowns and the upending of our lives, is as serious as it is because our current federal government was unprepared and slapdash and less than honest in its initial response. It is little more prepared now. In dealing with this crisis, the Trump White House has broken every rule in the book, specifically a book that was written after the 2001 anthrax scare about how to communicate with the public in a crisis like this one. The cover of that book, that set of guidelines, couldn't be more clear. Be first, be right, be credible, it says on the cover. We have it totally under control, Trump said on January 22nd. 22 equally off-kilter remarks later, he'd moved on to, it's something that nobody expected. As Trump's remarks contradicted those of the doctors and scientists, the government lost even more of the public's trust. The crisis had become a pandemic of incompetence. Clear messaging from our leadership in this crisis was and is just as important as the testing, and we weren't getting either. It was the president's son-in-law, who put together Trump's clumsy and confusing Oval Office address to the nation last week, even though Jared Kushner has no experience in infectious diseases and no experience in organizing a multi-agency federal crisis response. The day before, the World Health Organization had made the pandemic official. The stock market was in free fall. Schools were closing, some of them for the rest of this academic year. Major league sports had been suspended. And when the administration's conflicting messages and infighting became an issue, the president's son-in-law stepped in to fix it. Jared Kushner's sister-in-law is a supermodel whose father crowdsourced suggestions on Facebook and passed them along to Jared, who led the preparation of that Oval Office address. In that address, Trump announced he was suspending all travel from Europe, which had become the new epicenter for the pandemic. Homeland Security had to quickly clarify that does not include American citizens, permanent residents, their families, and others, but people were already racing to airports by then. And it was Kushner who put together the Rose Garden News Conference the next day that would try to mop up the mess left by Trump's Thursday night speech to the nation. There in the Rose Garden, Trump repeatedly touched the microphones and the people around him as he laid out a new plan for testing that wasn't ready 
Backed by CEOs from big retailers, testing labs, and medical supply makers, Trump promised drive-through testing across the country that is so far only available in the pandemic's hotspots. He also promised a Google website for screening possible coronavirus patients nationwide and to direct those eligible for treatment to the right locations. He also promised it would go online faster than other websites do. The president was wrong again on multiple counts. Google said it was preparing to test such a website in the San Francisco Bay Area, but that it would take a while longer to set up a nationwide site, as Trump had promised. When asked in the Rose Garden if he took any responsibility for the delay in America's testing or the disbanding of the pandemic response team, Trump called the question nasty and replied, I don't take responsibility at all. And that would appear to be the case. Trump, who hasn't shown any coronavirus symptoms, also said he would undergo a coronavirus test, even while continuing to deny he'd had significant contact at Mar-a-Lago with several people who've tested positive. Trump later said he had been tested and was awaiting the results. The White House announced the results were negative, but that announcement came simultaneous to another that said the president didn't qualify for testing and therefore didn't need one. So the facts on this are still unclear. As with so many untested Americans, time will tell. Our first line of defense having failed, it is now up to our second and third lines of defense to protect us from a fate worse than the one we'll already face even with these new precautions. Now that the virus has made its way past our federal government, state governments, hospitals, and the public itself are now on the front lines. And these front lines are at best a last-ditch effort to mitigate this crisis. Due to cuts by this administration in public health spending, due to the removal of the National Security Council's pandemic team because it was an Obama thing, and due to the lack of early testing and the mixed messages and disinformation from our leadership and the administration's ban on fetal tissue research for a coronavirus vaccine, it is now up to the rest of us to respond and to cope with what we have been handed. Footnote, in Turkey and Kuwait, dozens of people have been arrested for spreading inaccurate information about the pandemic. We don't know how or why, but in one day, a sidelined NBA team in Utah tested 58 people. That same day, the Centers for Disease Control had tested only 77 people nationwide. Last week, for every million people in this country, we were testing only 26 of them. This week, it's only 125 per million. For reasons that remain unclear, the Utah Jazz had tested nearly as many people in a day as had the CDC, while South Korea is testing 10,000 people a day. Widespread testing in this country is just starting this week, just starting for a disease that arrived here in January. As South Korea begins to recover, the U.S. this week is just starting to do what it should have done at least two months ago. The lack of testing means we don't know how many cases we actually have in the U.S. and that the number is likely many times higher than what's even officially recorded today. The lack of testing denies to health officials the knowledge of how many patients they might expect. The government's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, told Congress that the lack of early testing was a failing. First, the problem was a lack of test kits, followed by the Trump administration rejecting the kinds of kits used by the World Health Organization in favor of our own, 
followed by the distribution of faulty test kits, followed by tight restrictions on who could get tested because of the ongoing shortage of kits. Then came the travel bans, starting with China. By the time the president had shut down visitors from Europe a month later, the virus had already taken scores of lives in the U.S., which had by then developed its own hotspots of infection. A quicker and more honest response from the president who swore to protect us would have made a huge difference in the situation in which we all find ourselves now. A member of the Harvard Global Health Institute put it this way, it was a missed opportunity. Early on, we had enough hospital beds to handle this. Now we are facing a likely shortage of beds. Some hospitals are repurposing break rooms and therapy rooms for more bed space. Some have set up tents outdoors for pre-screening patients. As bad as it has gotten in Italy, with patients being turned away by hospitals there, the Surgeon General here warns there's every chance we could be Italy unless we employ strict social distancing now. State and local governments have been urging us to order national quarantine, one city and one state at a time. While Rhode Island and other places in the U.S. are limiting gatherings to 25 people or fewer, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention was urging that all gatherings of 50 people or more should be canceled or at least postponed for the next eight weeks. Not everyone's that optimistic about how long this might last. Quoting New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, I don't think it's going to be a short-term issue. I think this could be a six, even eight, nine-month affair. It was here before you knew it, said Cuomo, adding, and it will spread more than you think. Nobody's going to be immune from this, he said, continuing, thinking you are going to escape coming in contact with this, it's not going to happen. You can't control it. Who knows where the cab driver was? Who knows where the person who sits next to you on the bus was? Who knows who your buddy was with last night? End quote. Governor Cuomo also said that states, including his, need federal help to deal with this crisis. He called on Trump to call up the Army Corps of Engineers to set up new facilities for receiving COVID-19 patients. Trump responded on Twitter, saying Cuomo needed to do more. Cuomo tweeted back, no, you have to do something. You're supposed to be the president. Eventually, Trump conceded that Cuomo was doing a good job. The National Guard Tuesday was deployed in 22 states to provide various assistance, including disinfecting services. And FEMA has now finally been called in to also assist the states. FEMA is now viewing the pandemic as a level one emergency. The president on Monday was telling governors to try to acquire their own respirators and ventilators instead of waiting for the federal government. A study of Wuhan, China, shows that 80% of the infected population only had mild symptoms. 15% needed concentrated oxygen and 5% needed respirators. But that 20% of more ill patients needed three to six weeks for recovery. Ventilators are a matter of life and death for people seriously ill with the disease. They cannot breathe without one. Without enough ventilators, people will die needlessly. Try getting it yourselves, Trump told the governors in a conference call on which they were hoping to hear of more help from the feds. More help, not less. Monday night, we got some idea of why states should go their own ways. That same day, federal officials had told medical professionals across the country there aren't enough stockpiled medical supplies to meet the expected needs, specifically protective equipment for health care workers, including masks, gowns, and gloves. 
Vice President Mike Pence is now recommending that construction companies donate their face masks to the medical community. Trump invoked a law that forces the production of more face masks, and the Pentagon is giving 5 million face masks to healthcare workers. But our officially named strategic national stockpile isn't up to the task, according to the Health and Human Services officials on a conference call. The national stockpile isn't quite strategic enough. HHS told doctors it was working on the problem, but that it had not yet found a solution. Again, each state would have to try getting it for themselves. But as one governor put it, if one state doesn't get the resources and materials they need, the entire nation continues to be at risk. States were not only on their own, but they were now in competition with 49 other states. The federal government had one job, one job here, to fill the gap that state and local governments cannot cover. The federal government had one job and failed. On Tuesday, the Pentagon stepped up and offered as many as 5 million of its own respirator masks, along with up to 2,000 ventilators. The Pentagon, clearly more prepared than the civilian government, said it would make a million of those masks available immediately and that the U.S. Navy was preparing two hospital ships, even though those ships were designed to treat the wounded so there is no quick or easy way to segregate the infected patients. It's a ward. Healthcare workers across the U.S. say a shortage of swabs is holding up their testing. The Air Force National Guard has moved a half million coronavirus test swabs from Italy to Memphis via FedEx. A U.S. company is stepping up production as well. The 10,000 tests a day we were promised a week ago are now set to begin in April. And it was nearly two weeks ago when the president said anyone who needed a test could get it. Angela Merkel calls the virus crisis the biggest challenge Germany has faced since World War II. The Philippine government calls it a state of calamity. While the administration was recommending people avoid bars and restaurants, states, one by one, were shutting them down. With the late federal response to the pending crisis, limiting social contact would prove to be the only way now to slow the spread of the virus so that our health care system will be less overwhelmed so there would be fewer deaths. It is the states and cities that are banning large gatherings and closing schools, stadiums, racetracks, casinos, fitness clubs, and theaters, and making the restaurants drive through takeout, or delivery only. The mayor of New York warned citizens to prepare for a possible shelter-in-place order there. Just hours before California Governor Gavin Newsom would announce the closing of bars, clubs, and wineries, and that restaurants should cut their occupancy to allow for social distancing, California Republican Congressman Devin Nunes was on Fox Sunday telling viewers, quote, It's a great time to go out to a local restaurant. Likely you can get in easy. That same day, former New York Police Commissioner Bernard Carrick, recently pardoned by Trump, said this hysteria is being created to destroy Trump's economic success. Even after the Fox News Channel finally changed its tune from Democratic hoax to recession-inducing pandemic, the Republican right wing was still at it. West Virginia's Republican Governor Jim Justice said on Monday, if you want to go to Bob Evans and eat, go to Bob Evans and eat. Tuesday, his state became the 50th to be infected. Former presidential candidate Ron Paul, Rand Paul's fellow Republican dad, was saying this week, people should ask themselves whether this coronavirus pandemic could be a big hoax and with the actual danger of the disease massively exaggerated. 
end quote. And former Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark speculated that Democratic financier George Soros is behind the panic, tweeting in all caps, Go into the streets, folks. Visit bars, restaurants, and shopping malls. A Wall Street Journal NBC News poll found that before Trump recommended we avoid public gatherings, 61% of Democrats were already doing just that, while only 30% of Republicans were. I'm not happy with those people, Trump said, of the ones who didn't believe the gravity of the virus after he'd told them for years to ignore scientists and the legitimate news media, after he himself had told them it was all a Democratic hoax and that the number of cases would drift down to zero. There was suddenly a great need for Republicans to listen to the scientists and journalists, but now it was too late. Many Republicans still refused to listen. The damage had already been done, and now lives were at stake. More than a half dozen red states have failed to implement bans on big public gatherings, Mississippi, Missouri, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, and Wyoming. Those who do not take seriously the severity of this crisis are putting their own lives and the lives of others at risk. At a time we should be united to fight this pandemic, Many Republicans refuse to believe it, and we cannot beat this thing by being divided on science and the facts. It was also on Monday that we saw a president who was beginning to get a sense of just how serious this all is. Trump, who had once speculated it could be gone by April, admitted that the coronavirus siege could last through most of the summer and that there may be an economic recession. The government is now preparing for a pandemic that could last a year and a half. Government infectious disease expert Dr. Anthony Fauci says the U.S. pandemic would likely peak in about six weeks. The harder we fight the spread of the disease, the lower that peak will be. Although he continued to heap praise on himself and his administration, Trump was suddenly somber on Monday morning as he and his people laid out new guidelines for handling this pandemic. The new guidelines include avoiding groups of 10 people or more for the next 15 days, stay out of restaurants, bars, and nursing homes, work or learn from home when possible. If you're sick, stay home, and people over 60 and people with underlying health conditions should also stay home. After that announcement, some pundits wondered, was this somber Trump the new Trump? It was not. As the day progressed, Trump would refer to COVID-19 by its racist name, the China virus. China retaliated. Within 24 hours, it had ordered reporters from the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal to get out of China. China is now sending millions of test kits to France and the Philippines, but not to the U.S., where they are also needed from a lack of preparedness. At the precise moment that Trump was in the Rose Garden mocking the Democrats' proposals for coronavirus relief, which he eventually signed, a proposal was coming together at the hands of his own Treasury Secretary, Stephen Mnuchin, and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Within two hours of Trump's mocking, and after about a dozen phone calls between them, Pelosi and Mnuchin had a deal to extend unemployment pay, to expand sick leave and family leave, to help small businesses, to provide more money for Medicaid and food stamps, and to provide free virus testing. Mnuchin worked through the dinner hour Friday night, selling the president and the rest of the White House on the idea, and by the end of the night, Trump said he would sign it 
if the Senate would pass it too. Yesterday, the Senate passed it, and last night, Trump signed it. A solution had been found by bypassing the president and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Republicans and Democrats came together without them, for the most part, to support this bill. But Trump grew frustrated that the plan didn't include a payroll tax cut, which would do nothing for the hourly workers affected. Nevertheless, Trump would propose that payroll tax cut on Tuesday, along with a bailout for the teetering airline industry. Besides the shortage of medical supplies and ventilators, will there be enough hospital beds? New York says it needs 50,000 more of them. Without enough beds, patients will be turned away from hospitals. And will there be enough doctors and nurses? How many of them will fall ill? The answers depend on how much we can slow the infections. Social distancing, both voluntary and mandatory, is a big step in slowing the spread. There has been news this week about the virus itself, that it can survive up to three days on stainless steel, glass, and plastic surfaces, and that it can hang in the air for up to three hours. We learned this week that 80% of the spread of the virus is due to people who don't know they're sick, they have no symptoms, and they don't know they're carrying and spreading COVID-19. That, say the experts, is one way it has spread so quickly around the world. The U.S. Surgeon General is advising citizens to behave as though they are already infected, cleaning surfaces in their homes and staying six feet away from others to slow the spread of COVID-19. CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta says this should include not inviting people into your home. We heard from French doctors that aspirin, ibuprofen, and naproxen might aggravate COVID-19 and that patients should stick to acetaminophen or Tylenol. Other medical researchers say they're not convinced of this yet. Scientists at Oxford University believe they have a new coronavirus test that gives results three times faster than what we've been using, results in 30 minutes. Researchers in Senegal believe they've found a test for coronavirus you can do at home in 10 minutes for a dollar. Senegal has had its share of outbreaks, including malaria, dengue fever, AIDS, and Ebola. Partnered with the World Health Organization, Senegal has used pee-on-a-stick pregnancy tests to screen for malaria and HIV. A drop of blood or saliva on the stick instead of urine either will or won't produce a bold line on the stick. If the line appears, you are likely infected, according to researchers in Senegal. This method is now used around the world through a partnership between the Pasteur Foundation and a British company that makes the clear blue pregnancy test. South Korea, which outpaced the U.S. on testing for COVID-19, is now offering a treatment for infected patients. It's not a cure. It's not a vaccine against the disease. It's a treatment that involves a combination of antiviral and anti-malaria drugs. South Korean doctors recommend, with discretion, the use of a drug used to treat HIV patients by blocking the disease's ability to replicate itself. And a marketable vaccine is still said to be about a year away, but the first step toward it was taken this week as a female volunteer was injected with the first U.S. test vaccine. In Seattle, a woman with the virus was given a shot, the first shot, in a clinical trial that will continue with dozens of other volunteers over the next six weeks. The vaccine was developed by a lab in Cambridge, Massachusetts, funded by a private grant. Development of possible vaccines began in January when China released the DNA of the disease for study worldwide. 
and in China, a flu drug that boosts the body's immune response is showing therapeutic promise against COVID-19, slowing the development of the virus in the lungs. Despite the tense relations with China, this research was funded by the American Lung Association and could benefit the world. The World Health Organization is now reviewing all of this new research to find the best approaches. And then there's Trump's efforts to lure scientists away from Germany. The German government was furious after Trump offered a big medical company there, quote, large sums of money, end quote, if it would develop a vaccine just for the U.S., exclusive to the United States. Under Trump's plan, the U.S. would have had exclusive rights to a drug developed in a German lab by German scientists, and Germany would have no rights to it. A German newspaper headline read, Trump versus Berlin. Quoting one German government minister, obviously Trump will use any means available in an election campaign. To be on the safe side, the German government offered its own financial incentives to that company for the drug lab to stay. Germany says its company will not make the drug exclusive to any one country, but instead available to the world. The other half of this story, of course, is the economic effects of the pandemic. Millions of Americans are understandably more concerned about when their next paycheck is coming than they are about contracting this deadly disease. And rightly so. This past week has brought us the worst Wall Street numbers in decades. Despite all these expensive tools to stop the economy from bleeding out, the Dow fell so hard yesterday that trading was paused for the fourth time in two weeks. It fell below to where it was when Trump was inaugurated. All the gains of his presidency had been erased as if they'd never happened. All the gains he took credit for and hoped would glide him into a second term, gone. And with an unemployment rate possibly doubled from what we saw in the Great Recession. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin says that if the Senate does not act quickly on a bigger coronavirus response, the U.S. unemployment rate could reach 20%. The checks are not in the mail, but there apparently will be checks for middle and lower income Americans, possibly two checks each for up to 1000 bucks each on April 6th and May 18th. Trump's promising $3 billion in aid to small businesses, including a half billion in small business loans. That comes to over a half trillion dollars and accounts for more than half of the trillion-dollar stimulus package the Trump administration is asking from Congress. Tens, perhaps hundreds of billions of dollars would go to the airline industry. It's asked for $50 billion already, and the airports say they need $10 billion. The airplane makers say they need help, too. The Federal Reserve invoked its emergency lending powers, allowing the country to go further into debt to address this coronavirus financial crisis. Earlier this week, the Fed dropped interest rates to zero and 0.25 and eased lending rules. The Fed had used every tool and every power it had, and it did it all in one weekend, hoping to buoy the stock market. It didn't work. The Trump administration was promising checks to Americans and a temporary reduction of the payroll tax, which would not benefit the nation's sidelined hourly workers. But Trump did suspend all evictions and foreclosures through April. Combined with the House plan that's now been passed by the Senate, signed by the president, 
The government was using nearly every tool in its financial toolbox to keep this ship from sinking. Meanwhile, a recession is coming, like a tidal wave, fast and powerfully devastating, likely much worse than what we saw after 2008. The first effect the spreading coronavirus had in the 2020 election came when both Biden and Sanders, and even Trump, suspended their campaign rallies. All three candidates are in their 70s. The infections were spreading to nearly every state. No more shaking hands, no more selfies, and whatever you do, don't kiss a baby. Door-to-door campaigning would be virtually eliminated, and no more offers of rides to the polls. Candidates can be shuffled through appearances. It was the danger the attendees posed to each other, and the candidates would be spending a lot of time on airplanes, hopping from one primary state to another. So because of the pending pandemic, these rallies, as we have known them, were replaced, if that's possible, by virtual online rallies. It was all up to the Internet and phone calls, news conferences, and satellite hookups to TV stations now. Sanders and Biden debated Sunday night in a nearly empty studio. The 2020 race suddenly became our first touch-free campaign. If the virus still threatens in late July and beyond, even the conventions are threatened and poised to morph into TV and Internet-based gatherings. With an apparent nominee in each party, there was no need to crowd people from across the country into a large arena. We may be poised to see our first virtual nominating conventions, complete with slick production. No one yet wants to think about the effect a lingering pandemic might have on Election Day in November. And yet this week we were forced to think about it as states began postponing their primary elections. Louisiana was the first, announcing on Friday it would delay its presidential primaries from Saturday, April 4th to Saturday, June 20th. Just hours before the polls were to have opened on Tuesday of this week, Ohio's Republican governor announced that state's primary would move from March 17th to June 8th. Florida, Illinois, and Arizona forged ahead with their primaries on Tuesday amid concerns about a shortage of poll workers who are often older people. Aggressive recruitment campaigns, including higher pay, mostly filled the gap left by older workers who had been advised to stay home for at least the next two weeks. Wyoming Democrats have done away with the in-person caucuses set for April 4th and are pushing voting by mail. Nevada's Democrats have canceled their county conventions that normally lead up to the national convention. Expect more changes in the remaining primary states. Democratic National Committee Chairman Tom Perez is asking the states, urging states now to adopt vote by mail for the remaining primaries. The U.S. Constitution makes no provision for any election day other than the first Tuesday in November. It gives the president no emergency powers to postpone or cancel it. But that fact gives a little comfort to Salon.com's Bob Seska. Thank you, Buzz. Americans are collectively under more stress now than at any point since at least the Great Recession and maybe even rewinding all the way back to 9-11. We're staring into the unknown with three existential threats weighing down our spirits and threatening our lives. I'm talking about the simultaneous COVID-19 crisis, the financial crisis, and as always, the Trump crisis. A health threat, an economic threat, and a political threat conspiring to rip apart the cohesion and continuity of American life. As someone who was almost entirely chewed up by the 2008 crash, as someone who's experienced the devastating firestorms of the Santa Rosa wildfires in 2017, as someone who's watched one house flood and another house burn down, 
I'm quite familiar with the seemingly bottomless falling sensation that accompanies unforeseen catastrophes. In other words, if you're afraid or if you feel lost in all of this, you're not alone. One of the lessons of the 9-11 era and all of the fear and uncertainty of that time was that we all need to be more vigilant when it comes to selling out democracy for a little more safety. For whatever reason, Americans of both parties too quickly acquiesced to George W. Bush and Dick Cheney's cynical power grab in the wake of that horrible day, especially the passage of the Patriot Act and the ill-fated invasion and occupation of Iraq. And it looks like some of us are prepared to likewise sell out our democracy for safety in the face of COVID-19. On Monday, the Republican governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, announced that the state would be postponing its Tuesday primary election due to, he said, the health concerns involved in running the polling places during the pandemic. According to Ohio law, DeWine was and is incapable of unilaterally postponing the vote, so he instead sought the go-ahead from a judge who promptly denied the request. DeWine then defied the judge and announced the election would indeed be postponed. A challenge to DeWine's decision landed in the state Supreme Court, which upheld DeWine's decision. As of right now, the new date for the Ohio primary is June 2, which is fine, as long as the pandemic is on the downslope of the curve at that point, and there's no indication that it will be. Even Donald Trump warned that we could be caught in the throes of all of this through August, while experts are suggesting COVID-19 would surge again later in the year. Meanwhile, the Democratic convention is still on for July 13, which would also end up being the deadline for letting Ohio Democrats participate in the nominating process. Unless the June 2 vote is locked in place and immovable, irrespective of where we are in the pandemic, there's a possibility that the Republican governor of Ohio effectively disenfranchised Democratic Party voters in his own state. But that's only the beginning. During his Monday press conference, Trump said he supported DeWine's decision, which we can assume, includes DeWine's decision to defy the court order denying his postponement request. At a time when we're justifiably concerned that Trump might try to monkey around with the November general election, I was shocked to discover quite a few Democrats who were okay with DeWine's postponement. Most of the support came from Dems who were concerned about the older poll workers who might have been infected with the virus during the primary. While the concerns were well-placed and valid, the solution... The postponement was not. In fact, supporting the postponement was exactly what we shouldn't be doing in the face of this crisis. Quickly abandoning our democratic process due to fear will only send a message that it's okay to play games with our elections at a time when there are already massive impediments to the vote, be it gerrymandering, the horrendously pointless voter ID laws, voter purges, and more. Plus, there's the very real potential that Trump, who among other things is a well-practiced idea thief, will try to borrow DeWine's idea in November, when the pandemic might surge again. Adding to my suspicion, Ohio has an absentee ballot system already in place, which makes the postponement even more confounding. DeWine could have merely expanded mail-in voting and extended the deadline to submit, while also keeping open as many polling places as could be adequately staffed by volunteers. Waiting an extra week or two for the vote totals is preferable to moving the entire thing. Not only that, but other states have set up drive-through voting and other safety measures at in-person polling sites. Why did Ohio, and only Ohio, have to move the date? Americans throughout our national history have been arrested, beaten, persecuted, and murdered while seeking the right to vote. It's the centerpiece and founding bedrock of the American Republic. 
We've held national elections soon after the British burned Washington, D.C. We held elections during a civil war, two world wars, the Great Depression, and yes, we held elections during the deadly 1918 influenza pandemic. Now we should be expanding and improving the process, not shutting it down when past Americans have endured even greater challenges to their enfranchisement. There's significant wisdom in closing restaurants, bars, and gyms, even closing schools and sending workers home. Elections are different. They ought to be sacred and immovable. Given the myriad enemies of free and fair elections, we as citizens have to be hyper-aware of anyone, most of all Republicans who have a history of this, when they begin to interfere in the process. With a clear and present danger to the Republic sitting in the White House, a mad king cloaked in immense power, we shouldn't be offering up even the narrowest route for him to exploit in the relentless expansion of his authoritarianism. It won't require much for him to take the next step. His very freedom depends on him retaining power. But once we soften our posture, allowing elections to be moved and rescheduled, it'll be much easier for him and his henchmen state by state to do the same in November and beyond. We have no choice but to draw the line here and protect our republic at any cost. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I joined Bob on his Tuesday shows. Pandemic concerns certainly had their effect on voting this week in the three states that did vote on Tuesday, Illinois, Arizona, and Florida. First, there was a shortage of poll workers, poll volunteers, frequently people who aren't working, mostly retired people, older people. And because they'd been advised by government doctors to stay home, they did, leaving polls shorthanded, forcing many to shift locations or close completely. A lot of voters stayed home as well. Virus concerns kept people away from the polls in all three states, but in Florida, where so many people vote early, voting was actually up, higher than it was in 2016. It was a strong week for Biden. First, he scored big in Sunday's debate by saying he'd pick a woman to be his vice president. Sanders said he likely would too, but quote, making sure we have a progressive woman. Viewers also liked Biden's desire to address the pandemic immediately by improving the health care system we have, saying people want results, not a revolution. Sanders argued instead for his Medicare for All plan, which would eliminate private insurance. It was a sad week for Sanders and his supporters, but it was a strong week for Biden. Biden won four primaries this week, even though there were only three on Tuesday. Because it was this week that we learned Biden had beaten Sanders in Washington State, one of last week's primaries. And then on Tuesday, Biden swept Arizona, Illinois, and as expected, Florida. Joe Biden now holds a commanding 300-point lead over Bernie Sanders, a lead that is virtually impossible to overcome. Yesterday, Biden was reportedly speaking to supporters about his options at this point. They appear to be slim. In the latest email to his supporters, Sanders provides a link to his coronavirus plan and for the first time did not include a link to donate to his campaign. Although he says such talk is premature, Sanders appears to be preparing to drop out of the race, he's now at home with his family, talking by phone with Joe Biden. The pandemic panic isn't just in grocery stores. Gun stores have been pretty busy these past few weeks. 
In fact, guns haven't sold this quickly since right after the Sandy Hook massacre of young school children in 2012 when gun advocates were, as always, convinced that their weapons of war would be taken away. It isn't just in Florida either. Elsewhere in the country, gun sales have shot up by nearly 70%. Ammo is flying off the shelves at Shop for Adventure in Florida's Pinellas Park. So are shotguns and handguns. The Tampa Bay Times reports background checks are up there by about 75%. And March is not usually the busy season for buying guns. This year it is. One gun shop owner says he thinks people are buying guns in case people panic. And with Americans focused on the pandemic and its economic effects, the Trump administration has proposed even more restrictions on people seeking asylum in the U.S., not immigrants, asylum seekers, people fleeing violence and oppression. This change allows the denial of asylum for more minor crimes, including the crime of re-entering the U.S. And with all the focus on the new coronavirus, what better time for Trump to be strongly considering a full pardon for Mike Flynn? Those were Trump's own words in a Sunday tweet that was not focused on our two national emergencies, public health and the economy. Trump had just seen another tweet from a Fox News pundit who claims the FBI is still hiding proof of Flynn's innocence. Flynn's lawyer claims the FBI lost and manipulated some records that would exonerate Flynn, which Trump called convenient, suggesting another deep state conspiracy. The FBI says this claim is false and that it can prove that. Still, Flynn's lawyer says his client would, quote, wear a pardon like a badge of honor. So Trump tweeted, I am strongly considering a full pardon, capitalizing pardon and adding an exclamation point for extra emphasis. And then this happened. On Monday, Bill Barr's Justice Department moved to drop the charges against two Russian shell companies accused of financing Russia's 2016 election interference campaign. Charges were filed against these companies by special counsel Robert Mueller. And now... Bill Barr was making those cases go away. Barr's Justice Department says one of the companies has tried to get evidence from federal prosecutors noting that would violate U.S. national security. The U.S. is still going after one Russian national, a woman who managed a multi-million dollar budget for Russia's troll farms. Pandemic versus pollution. Your nearby theater is coming to you and a really fast cow in the final segment after this. There's a whole list of expenses related to the production of these programs. So this newscast is free to you, but not free to make. If you'd like to help in this effort, please click on the PayPal Donate button on the upper right at buzzburbank.com or on your phone just below the title Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Some kind listeners who support this free independent journalism schedule a monthly payment. You may need some things you can't go out for. You may need books or music or movies. Well, there's still a little Amazon button on my page. If you're shopping Amazon anyway, clicking through my website and bookmarking that page still helps. You may need to turn off your pop-up blocker to see all the useful links on my page, but it is both safe and helpful to do so. Whatever you do, whatever you've done, however you do it, thank you. Forbes Online Business Magazine reports that the COVID-19 lockdown may save more lives than it takes by preventing pollution. 
With factories closed, planes out of the sky, and cars off the roads, the world is suddenly producing far less carbon emissions. A Stanford University scientist estimates that China's lockdown alone has saved 77,000 lives conservatively. Deaths from air pollution are expected to fall. There's less nitrogen dioxide in the air over shutdown Italy. The U.S. normally loses 100,000 people a year to air pollution. The world typically loses 7 million people a year from air pollution. Those numbers are destined to be lower this year. After falling for three straight weeks, the number of flu cases was up again last week, ending speculation that the flu season was over. But the CDC says doctors may be diagnosing more cases with more people checking in with their physicians in their concerns about COVID-19, which has some similar symptoms. Movie ticket sales this week were the lowest they have been in nearly 20 years. The top movie, Onward, barely made $10 bucks. Out of public health concerns, AMC theaters and Regal Cinemas have closed. The National Association of Theater Owners is now also asking for government assistance. Because theaters are empty or closed, Universal Pictures says it will release several of its current movies to video on demand starting in April at 20 bucks for 48 hours. Movie production has stopped. Television production has stopped. Most late-night shows are going into reruns. Trevor Noah, Jimmy Kimmel, and Conan O'Brien have been doing their shows from their living rooms. Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson are out of their Australian hospital beds, now recovering from COVID-19. Hanks reports having the blahs. The entertainment world is also grinding to a stop. No part of our lives goes untouched now by this new virus. Last week it was Led Zeppelin. This week it's Katy Perry getting out from under a plagiarism lawsuit. She had been successfully sued for nearly $3 million by a Christian rap group over a combination of notes in Perry's hit Dark Horse, similar to their song Joyful Noise. But Perry appealed the lower court's decision and got it reversed. The luck of the Irish this St. Patrick's Day week struck Matthew Bonnet of Bell Chase, Louisiana. Somebody found the hard hat he'd lost while working on the Mississippi River 25 years ago. It wasn't just any hard hat. It bore the purple and gold of Louisiana State University and a sticker for Local 25 of the International Union of Operating Engineers. The hat that was lost in the mighty Mississippi nearly a quarter century ago turned up this St. Patrick's Day week on a beach in Ireland. Until last week, there was a law in Florida that imposed a $50 fine for not delivering a telegraph message promptly. But Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has signed a bill scrapping that law. In so doing, he brought an end to the telegraph era in the Sunshine State. The telegraph, of course, was supplanted by telephones and fax machines and then emails, texts, and social media. But the telegraph had its day in this country when it put the Pony Express out of business. Florida lawmakers of both parties had a pretty good laugh over the bill, one asking what telegraphs are. Another answered Google it and added, next year we're going after carrier pigeons on the Morse code. A distillery in Maryland has a new product they'd like you to try, but don't drink it. Twin Valley Distributors of Rockville, Maryland, is now producing and selling hand sanitizer 
at six fifty for an eight ounce bottle. Making the grain alcohol is easy when you have a distillery. Now they're adding aloe vera gel, vitamin E oil, and for a nice fresh scent, lemongrass oil. Other distilleries are also stepping up to help the war effort. We all do what we can. Millennials and other young people are being warned that what some of them call the boomer remover could seriously harm or even kill members of their own families and even themselves. But in Massachusetts, seniors at the Olin College of Engineering have conducted what they call a fomencement, a fomencement exercise, an online graduation ceremony with cardboard mortarboard caps, tassels made of yarn, and black vinyl garbage bags as gowns. Quoting one student, a pretty awesome idea in a challenging time. And from the home office in Florida today comes the story of a fast cow, not car, cow. Police in the Miami suburb of Pembroke Pines were asking for the public's help in tracking down a cow that's been on the run since January. Police there say they have been unable to wrangle the cow on account of, quote, its surprising speed and amazing fence-jumping skills. Online, Pembroke Pines police posted a picture of the cow on a makeshift wanted poster. Police say the cow, despite its speed and mad gymnastic skills, does not pose a threat to the public other than perhaps wandering onto a roadway. The wanted poster reads, Female cow, brown with a white head, faster than it looks, enjoys pools, frequents the area near Sheridan Street and I-75. The poster says the cow is wanted for several moving violations. And finally, a Gallup, New Mexico man has turned himself into police while they were investigating a burglary. Sage Cummins approached an officer at the crime scene and told him that he had stolen the television sets from the victim's home and that he didn't realize he was doing it at the time because he was so incredibly drunk. Quoting the police report, he woke up at 8.30 a.m. the next day and noticed he had two TVs in his room. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.